The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room hosts Luke Gorski and Marcus Antonellis sit down and have a conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Trident Room Podcast. I'm Luke Gorski, and today I'm joined by fellow Trident Room Podcast host Marcus Antonellis. Today we're going to have our first of what is hopefully many conversations about what we, as two junior officers, see as the future needs of the Navy and how the Navy can position itself for success once we are hopefully, at least, in more senior positions and ready to bring ships into the fight should it come to that. Our first few conversations will be Marcus and I discussing what we see as the key needs of the Navy in the future, and then we'll transition to start leveraging the knowledge base here at MPS to see if Marcus and I are moving along the right course or if we're just a couple of JOs blowing smoke. Uh, so we hope that the audience will find the conversation useful and put some, maybe put some context around some of the big ideas that are circulating regarding naval strategy. So uh, Marcus, can you maybe dive a little bit more into what we're, we're aiming for here? First of all, props to you for coming up with the idea. Um, given what we've seen over the past, I mean, just since you and I have been in the Navy, um, all the way, I mean, since since the turn of the, I guess, century, um, it's safe to say that the naval battlescape has changed exponentially, more so in the past 20 years than ever at any other period uh, in time, except maybe when they first thought that, hey, these wooden boat things can float. <laughs> hey, we got to look we got to look to the future because so much has happened. If we don't brace for change, we're going to sort of like you're jumping in a cold pool. We're going to it's going to be a real shock to the system. So what is what is the conversation we're having here today? Um, so w- what we're going to try to do today is define a set of requirements um, for for lack of a better term. Hey, this is what this is what naval warfare has done over the past 20 years. This is what we think it's going to do over the next 20 years. So maybe when you and I are sitting in different chairs um, with different collar devices, we have the fleet at our disposal that we wanted or that we would we would desire that can do everything that we want in, in the future's day and age. What does that look like? What does that mean? What do we need to be able to do? Um, and yeah, what is what is the shape of the fleet look like? Because... Um, the, the, the shape and the composition of the, the naval fleet and um, surface, subsurface, aviation side, the, the, the fleet composition over the past, I mean, couple decades now has been carrier strike group centric. And I think just now we're starting to sort of get away from that with other uh, concepts, um, more distributed lethality, um, to steal a term from a few years ago. Um, and sort of s- the spreading out of assets. Um, no longer will you have these um, monolithic carrier strike groups floating around that are tremendously capable, each and of themselves, but when you only have 11 of them, presuming all of them are out and about, that's, that's, that's only 11 spots on the planet. And as the domain shifts, as warfare moves into different domains like space and cyberspace, the the uh, the carrier strike group isn't uh, isn't necessarily tailored to handle something like that. 
Well, at least not as currently constructed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What I, I, at no point in this conversation is my intention to say what we currently have terrible and awful. Um, our current ships are still very capable and they've done a very good job at adapting, um, onboarding new technologies, hardware, software, ideas. Yeah. So kind of the, the key point will be when we're sitting, as Marcus said, in different chairs with different caller devices, what is that one ship that we're going to say, wow, I really wish I had more of these at my disposal. This is a useful ship for a peer competitor, peer adversary, however you want to phrase that. Uh, in, And we're looking primarily into the 2030s or so. Again, kind of limiting it to when Marcus and I are still in the Navy, uh, able to uh, affect combat operations. So kind of near-term future, you might say. Um, and we are going to limit it uh, mostly to surface ships. I think we, if we go and start talking about, you know, what would we want on the subsurface side or the air side, that just makes it a completely long conversation. Maybe one that's worth having, maybe one we can have in the future. But today we're talking about uh, primarily focusing on the, the surface side of the war. Well, yeah, and I definitely think that uh, plays to our strengths. I mean, both of us, I've, we've spent most of our, the entirety of our time above the ocean, um, on the ocean, not beneath it or above it. Right, so exactly. So I, uh, I think it would uh, be irresponsible of us to start trying to make assumptions of what the pilots or the, the, uh, the submariners would care for, because I don't know what they would care for. <laughs> um, so... Why don't we just roll into um, some of the some of the requirements we were we were uh, talking about earlier? Yeah, so we uh, had a little bit of a discussion, um, and what we decided uh, came up with a number of requirements and basically summed them up into two buckets. So when we're looking at a, a peer adversary fight in the 2030s, early 2040s, the two main areas that we found we want to make sure we have on a surface ship in that area is one, it's survivability, and two, it's ability to fire first and fire effectively. And I think I'm stealing a little bit from Wayne Hughes there, but I think he, he'd be okay with that. Uh, inform some of the conversations uh, as we go forward. Um, but Marcus, what would you say under those two, where do you want to start? Yeah, so... Um We'll start with survivability because I think that I think survivability invokes in a lot of people oh just being able to survive a missile shot or getting shot at by a five inch gun and well yes that can certainly fall under the um, survivability umbrella I think as our near peer adversaries uh, move into more unconventional domains of attack like we mentioned earlier, cyberspace and then space itself. Survivability isn't just having a thicker hull or a more effective SeaWiz um, or a new self-defense missile or directed energy weapon that can protect you from anything um, that could potentially fly at you in physical space. It's also redundancy and hardening of your software assets in cyberspace. So... And I think that will tie itself nicely into the other sort of bucket you talked about um, as far as uh, hardened command and control, Um, because that will then lend itself to being able to strike first and strike effectively Mm -hmm. um, to ensure you have 
a succinct and effective flow of information. Um, and we have ballooned in so far as our information producers and sources and places you can go to find out things. And it can often be quite intimidating and cumbersome just to the operator sitting in a chair in combat on a DDG somewhere. Where do, where do I go to find this? Well, you can go here, or you can go here, or you can go here, but this place will only give you this way. It'll only give you it with this information, um, which again, it, too much information, it's a, it's a good problem to have, I would say. A good problem to have to a point. Exactly, right. Especially yeah. as we start looking at a lot of these newer sensors and you're able to see farther out. And, you know, it's great to be able to, to see over the horizon, but when you forget about the... I spent some time in Fifth Fleet. When you start forgetting about the, you know, motorboat with a RPG on it right next to you, then, yeah, it's not as lethal as a, you know, DF-21 firing at you. But at the same time, it will have an effect on your ship no matter what. So yeah. uh, it's really being able to balance that flow of information and understanding what is important, what is not important, and making sure that you're staying on top of the, uh, maybe not the best way to say it, but tactical or operational situation. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, 100 percent and sort of tying that all back. I feel like we've sort of diverged from survivability. Uh, But uh, no, I think I think that definitely um, will be easier. The sort of the the integrated view that you speak of where you have you're able to sort of consider all domains, all ranges, um, these survivable um, ships, these survivable communications paths will allow for that mm-hmm. to have sort of these multiple streams where you can look, you can look out far, you can look in close quickly, um, and with, uh, with, with ease. Um, and I think right. that lends itself to survivability. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, the number one thing is you have to be able to see your threat in order to defend against it and survive against it. And again, that's multi-domain. And especially as we become more reliant or at least train more towards um, having access to information constantly, having uh, interconnectivity between platforms. um, And as we move towards a more distributed Navy, we need to ensure that those links are survivable um, and ensure that if they're if they are interrupted, we're able to find either a way around them through a different communications path or um, be able to operate, have enough capability on our own to carry out commander's intent and the mission. Right, yeah, uh, I, I agree 100%. And especially especially nowadays, like I, I do think we're, we're reaching a point where we, we do have substantial redundancy when it comes to um, communications paths. Now, I don't necessarily equate redundancy with survivability, because if you have 17 eggs and they all break, then you have zero eggs. But if you have something a little more robust, like a brick, like it's a lot harder to, if I'd rather have three bricks Mm -hmm. than 17 eggs if I'm trying to break through a window. So um, that's a odd analogy. So basically, Um, when we're looking at what we want in our surface ship, we want it to be able to have a survivable communications path. Assured C2 is probably the the right way to say it for the Navy. So we want to make sure that on the ship, the ship has the 
cyber capabilities oh. to defend against cyber attack, as well as the capability to project and receive communications in an electromagnetically contested environment. Right, and that's sort of that's what I was trying to allude to with that terrible analogy. Like the links themselves, while there can be several of them, but the the singular links themselves still need to be inherently individually survivable because mm-hmm. yeah one can go down and you can come up on another one but if that if that becomes the norm eventually you're going to hit zero mm-hmm. and then what do you do right yeah so i think you know it's just had a good conversation about a church c2 is definitely a piece of that survivability uh standpoint uh and then the next part that i think is kind of interesting is in terms of the survivability in terms of the ability to put your ship at risk, right? So we're operating in large anti-area, anti-access, anti-denial. Anti-area, access. Access denied areas. Yeah, A2AD. There we go. Okay. Yeah, there's an acronym for everything. Anti-access. There we go. Anti-access aerial denial. We're going to be operating our ships in anti-access aerial denial envelopes. With, you know, extremely advanced weapon systems. So these ships have to be able to operate in that. And I think one key component is that of that is willingness to employ your ships in those areas. Uh, so I think that, I know you're coming from the LCS program, I think that one of the big advantages of the LCS program is its manning capabilities. So using the minimal manning system, I mean, it's it's a hard thing to talk about, but if we're going to war with a pure competitor, it's ships being sunk and sailors are on those ships, right? Uh, being able to distribute your human capital in some ways, you know, when you're accepting losses in a war, you have to be able to rationalize those losses. And risking fewer people to achieve the same end state is kind of one of the things we want to look at. Um, so I think that as we look for a look into a ship, um, and I don't think we can go fully unmanned. I don't think by the 2030s, 2040s, a fully unmanned fleet is in in the house of cards, uh, We in the deck of cards. We need to uh, take a look at how we minimize human risk when conducting uh, operations in high threat environments. Yeah, no, and that, that's a good, that's a good, example you raise i mean yeah the 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 idea behind the lcs program was hey we have uh, we have a ship that only costs ideally this was back in its inception back in the early 2000s hey we can have three lcs's for one ddg that was the idea Um, and then with a crew of only 50 or so people that's a sixth of the crew of a traditional DDG or a cruiser. So for the same price, you can have six crews and three ships. And yeah, that that's that's sort of that was one of the selling points of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, I think I think the best way though to mitigate human risk in a in a hostile or in a potentially hostile naval battle um is to just is to put them on one of the best platform in the world and give them the best training in the world because mm-hmm. nothing like having having the the sharpest sword is is one thing but knowing how to use it is another um and i think that's really 
we 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 really need to look into how we can how we pursue um, this this maritime supremacy as it's not just a ship issue it's not just a training issue it's both mm-hmm. we need to have the right ships and train our sailors the right way to operate these ships because mm-hmm. um, when there's miscommunic or when there is when those two are disjointed you don't have you don't have an effective um, maritime force because they're trained one way but their tools and equipment want to be used another way that doesn't work and that that often can lead to detrimental effects right yeah so yeah and i think uh going along the lcs example as well i as they say quantity has a quality all of its own so i think one of the ideas that i think we really should uh explore as we go and talk about this ship is scalability is the um, production side uh are we able to pump up pump out enough of these ships that they make a difference going into conflict against a peer competitor. I think that uh, it's definitely at least part of the equation. Is it the most important of the is it the most important part of the equation or is it something just to think about in the back of your mind? I think that that's something that we can look in future episodes, but um, what, do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's sort of where you and I uh, I guess for lack of a disagree has a negative connotation, but I think that's where you and y- your thoughts and my thoughts sort of diverged. I guess not diverged, but we need to we need to figure out what do we want to do. Do we want to have units all over the place that m- maybe aren't the most capable of assets, or do we want to have several exquisite assets that are highly capable, but with that carry a larger price tag, likely a larger manning and training requirement, and or, I mean, there's always a middle ground or a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. So what, what does that look like? Um, I, I never like to pick absolute sides of the spectrum, so I'm, I, I tend towards the middle um, because I do think there is still an application and a need and a requirement for an exquisite, a flagship-esque class of ship that can do it all or at least do one thing amazingly and really be a deterrent. And then you have, yeah, then you have your smaller units that are distributed throughout. And the, the way those would really be successful is if they are part of this, this network um, where they're all talking and one, one asset may have a track on something somewhere but might not have the right weapon system to engage it. But another another uh, vessel um, over the horizon, wherever it is, maybe it has a weapon system that can engage that target. Um, over the horizon, third-party targeting is going to be one of the, um, at least in my opinion, one of the biggest aspects of naval warfare going forward because like ranges or ranges on missiles are getting insanely long. Like put mm-hmm. like thousand like cruise. I mean, anti ship cruise missiles are already past the thousand kilometer envelope. Like well pa- well past it. Um. So how do we combat that? And then on the other side, on the offensive side, how do we then also hold their assets at risk? How do right. we put them in uncomfortable situations? Because 
I mean, we've had we've been we've been floating around in some of our adversaries' backyards for a while now, under the or I guess well within the range of most of their weapon systems. And there are some pretty scary weapon systems out there that have all sorts of um, all sorts of measures to make sure that that missile goes from point A to point B, point B being our ships mm-hmm. with no interruption. And that's concerning. Um, and we, as a, as, a, as a force, need to start figuring out how we can start doing the same to them whilst still in their backyard. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.